they want to pretend that they are democracy. I mean, the whole uh, story about not letting people run in elections or even not let, they say that there are about 9 million people at the moment who are deprived of this right. Welcome to the Matrix podcast. My name is Sam Knights. I'm a barrister at Matrix. I'm also chair of the advisory board of the European Human Rights Advocacy Center, which has been working with Russian lawyers, including those at the NGO Memorial, bringing cases to the Strasbourg court. I'm here today with two people who have a very long-standing and deep knowledge of Russian affairs. And we're going to be talking about the curbs on free expression, protest, political opposition, and what's happening right now in Russia. Masha Karp is a London-based freelance journalist and writer, trustee of rights in Russia, and for many years she worked with the BBC Russian Service and presented and produced for Radio 4 and the BBC World Service. She's also an author of a Russian biography of George Orwell and is currently working on a new book on George and George Orwell and Russia. And I'm also here with Owen Matthews. Owen is a writer, historian and journalist. He's the former Moscow and Istanbul bureau chief for Newsweek magazine and the author of many books, including Stalin's Children, which is a very personal history of his family in Russia. And most recently, an impeccable spy, Richard Richard Sorge, Stalin's master agent. Masha, Owen, it's great to have you both here. It feels a very tense time indeed in terms of Russia's relationship with the West, but also the internal political situation in Russia. Um, The recent talks between Biden and Putin on arms control and cyber attacks um, don't leave us with a great deal of hope. And we can see all of this taking place against a backdrop of really bad uh, relations between Russia and the, the West. The Russia reports, which came out both in the US and the UK, described Russian meddling in foreign elections. We have Navalny in a very critical state, indeed, in prison. Putin refusing to give any guarantee he'll get out alive. And very recently, a new law just passed in June, banning extremists from running in elections, which was uh, aimed directly at him and his party. But of course, underpinning all of uh, this and what we know about Russia is the ability for people like you, journalists, to carry out their work freely and without fear of reprisal. And Masha, I wanted to um, ask you first, your sense of uh, free expression right now in Russia and comparing it really to the, you know, the late Soviet period, the period under Gorbachev in the um, 80s and 90s. I mean, does it feel as if that period now, the so- that late Soviet period, was actually fr- much freer than what we have today? No, it was not much freer. The late Soviet period was pretty bad. I lived in uh, Leningrad at that time and things were grim. Of course, when Gorbachev came, things changed and uh, uh, people started writing and speaking freely. In Yeltsin's time, it carried on, but uh, not as freely as under Gorbachev, I, I, I think. But uh, And even the early Putin's time were still uh, running on, uh, on these principles of uh, uh, 
changes of perestroika. The things that really, uh, the, the uh, dates when things really started changing was after winter protests of 2011-2012 when people uh, started coming out to the streets to protest against Putin's coming back to become the president. And it was then that the expression mad printer was first used, and it was used to uh, denote the laws passed by the Russian state Duma, the Russian parliament, the laws which uh, prohibited despite Russian constitution, the freedom of assembly, uh, and then uh, even a single person uh, protests were outlawed. And gradually, it's, it's been for 10 years that this mad printer has been working and um, uh, making changes in the laws to bring them back to the Soviet times. So I want to talk a little bit more about the um, the law in a minute and this sort of use that um, has been made um, in Russia of increasingly detailed laws curbing freedoms. But before we go there, Owen, I wanted to bring you in because you've obviously been reporting as well for, for decades on Russia. You've been living in and out of the country. I mean, what's it? what was it like over this period working as a journalist? Are you very conscious of no-go areas, things that you can say, can't say? I mean, how, how, how free is anybody writing about Russia? Well, um, firstly, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be on your podcast. Um, the, um, uh, there's, there's something that actually is a very fundamental difference, and I think Marshall will agree, um, with the late Soviet period. And that is that um, in, under, the Soviet, under Soviet rule, there was you know, such a thing as thought crime. There was ideological uh, transgression, which as a historian of, as a, of, of Orwell, Marshall will know very well. Um, it's different now. And what's very surprising, I think, to many people is the degree which uh, Russia remains strangely, uh, certainly the Russian media and certainly, most certainly the Russian internet, uh, remains strangely free. Uh, and that sounds rather paradoxical because it doesn't in any way undermine what, uh, what the, the main theme that we're talking about, about uh, political repression and, the, and, the, and the, the, the lack of freedom. But nonetheless, you actually still, if you wish to, in, Ameri in, 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 uh, in, in Moscow, you may still subscribe to Dojd Television, which is more or less independent. You may listen to Radio Echo Moskvi, which is although it's owned by Gazprom Bank and which is so sort of arm's length owned by the, by the Russian state, nonetheless actually has all kinds of uh, uh, liberal commentators and criticizes the regime very much. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a strange paradox. Um, and the principle is very simple. And the principle is just one of pragmatism, is that actually you can go on Dodge TV and say whatever you like, uh, because the subscriber base is very small. It doesn't reach enough people. And the uh, you can say things on these small platforms, which are basically the, um, listened to and watched by the um, urban intelligentsia, um, things that you cannot conceivably say on Russian state television. 
And that's a very uh, fundamental difference from from the the, the, the late Soviet period. And um, the that was precisely the principle that Alexei Navalny transgressed, because Navalny was saying things that he could have said until he's blue in the face to 100,000 subscribers of Dodge TV. But instead, he said it on YouTube. And as we know, we know there was something like the last number was 81 million views of his uh, film on Putin's palace. So his crime is not a thought crime. It's because he's, his audience has become sufficiently large to become a threat. So it's a pragmatic response by a regime that is afraid of the destabilization that certain critics can affect. It's not a blanket ban on all criticism. And your question was about the uh, about my working as a journalist. Uh, <clears throat> as a foreign correspondent, I actually um, uh, I'm completely free to write whatever I like, and all foreign correspondents do, uh, which is the more or less the diametric opposite of the case of uh, Russian journalism. And Russian journalism, you know, basically doesn't exist anymore because there's so few outlets for it. Could I come uh, come in with something uh, that uh, Owen has just said? Uh, I completely agree with what you are saying about the thought crime. But uh, what uh, I think is characteristic of the current period is the arbitrary nature of the punishment. For example, yes, you can uh, discuss anything uh, on Facebook, but if the state wants to prosecute you, they would uh, charge you with extremism, say, for a repost of somebody else's post and this can make you um, uh, uneligible, uh, say, uh, for uh, running um, in elections or sometimes even for voting, I think, uh, because this is a uh, this is uh, uh, an extremism, an offense uh, to repost extremist things and as far as uh, extremist views. But as far as the foreign correspondents uh, are concerned, yes, you, you are right that as a foreign correspondent you are freer. But let's take the case of Radio Liberty, who has been uh, present uh, in Russia since uh, 1988. Uh, they had an office, they have had an office in Moscow. Now that they came under the uh, law of foreign agents, they are consistently fined for refusing to mark all their materials with the words Radio Liberty is a foreign agent according to the Russian law. You can be marked, uh, you can be fined and even, I think, arrested after a certain time for breaching this law of foreign agents. Now, in Russian, a foreign agent, exactly as in English, has very, very, very negative connotation. It is like a spy, like an agent acting in the interests of uh, foreign powers, not in the interests of Russia. So some of uh, the Liberty correspondents had to uh, move uh, to to fl to 
leave Russia and to go either to Prague, where their center is, or to Kiev. Uh, and uh, the situation is pretty uh, difficult for them now. And it's not just Radio Liberty, but also another um, station that also is financed by the Americans the current time, a very good uh, new outlet. So they are what i think the current authorities are doing they are trying to intimidate people that's why this arbitrary nature of um prosecutions persecutions as well um i mean i wonder on the on the subject of the difference between foreign uh, correspondents and, and and russian journalists whether we you know we might see a change going forward i think it's interesting seeing the reaction to Catherine belton's book on putin for example obviously putin hasn't sued her but um, two oligarchs have sued her and the and the publishers and that is of course an incredibly detailed book based on decades of research and interviews very, very carefully um, sourced. And a lot of people have described it as a very authoritative account of, of what's going on in Russia. So uh, I wonder whether there may be um, increasingly um, curbs and attacks on, um, on foreign journalists. I guess it part, in part depends, as you say, Rush Owen, as to how wide, widespread they are and how much um, social media coverage they get. Um, perhaps if, they, if it remains in English, um, it's, it's of less concern. But if it's beamed out in Moscow in Russian, um, it, it's, of, it's of greater concern. Um, but I wanted I wanted to ask um, you both about this this sort of increased use of of the law to curb the freedoms because on one view you might say well do they really need to you know, pass all these these new laws can't they just can't they just get on and do what they want to do and you know arrest people etc but what we've seen is this constant tweaking of the law so that you know there is the use of the law directly in, in quite a sophisticated way i mean the law is quite complicated anybody who's sort of sat in these cases um to do with russian protest laws know that they that, you know they they are they are complex um so and some degree Russia sort of cares about being a member of the Council of Europe. It's got that sort of badge. I mean, is that is that something? Do you think that matters to um, to, to Russia, Masha? Does it does it want to be um, part of this international community and and have the badge of some degree of uh, you know democracy? Well, absolutely. I mean, they want to pretend that they are democracy. I mean, the whole uh, story about not letting people run in elections or even not let, they say that there are about 9 million people at the moment who are deprived of this right. Of course, 6 million out of them are uh, people who have dual citizenship uh, or residence permits or basically live abroad. So, But still, there are 3 million people who had have been convicted of uh, different uh, offenses. But uh, the um, all this somehow is aimed at um, making people think that elections matter. 
In real life, we all know that Putin has just uh, passed the amendments to the Constitution, which allow him to stay in his place till uh, 2036. It will be longer than Stalin's rule. So uh, if these things are possible, that, no, that means that no democracy, no elections matter any, anymore. But because they are trying to observe the rules of democratic countries, they not simply arrest uh, people who uh, took part in Navalny's anti-corruption uh, foundation or people who donated money to it. They do not just arrest them. They deprive them of the right to run elections so that uh, elections would bring the results necessary for the rulers. Mm -hmm. I mean, Owen, you've got obviously got a, a, um, a great insight to the sort of sense inside Russia, you know, what people are thinking um, there, how they're reacting. I mean, what, what, what's, you know, what, are pe what is people's view about what's going on in Russia, the increasing use of law to curb freedom of expression? Um, you know, do, do, are people deeply worried about these loss of basic liberties? What's, what's your sense? Uh, well, um, the... Um um, frankly, the, um, the, the the only real bellwether is um, uh, the only real forensic examination of what how what Russian people feel is the one remaining uh, pollster, um, the Levada Center. There's only one. They've they, they've all been shut down. All, all, all the others have been shut down. Uh, interestingly, the Kremlin is obsessed with polling. I did a major piece about this a few years ago, is that the, uh, the, the Kremlin has actually taken over several major pollsters, which have now been sort of absorbed into the Kremlin political machine. And it's one of the odd things, one of the striking things about the Putin regime is that they are exceptionally sensitive to public opinion. And uh, there are several cases, several very major cases of policy reversals that have actually sort of gone into uh, reverse. Notably, in fact, as early as 2017, Putin tried to raise the, the pension age. Uh, he's, he's since, in fact, done that. But um, the prospect of mass protests uh, that were spilling beyond the edges of the urban intelligentsia was so alarming to the to the Kremlin that there was a sort of groundswell of opinion that they dialed back on that. And so essentially, I can't answer your question, what do Russian people feel about this? I mean, I don't think anyone can, uh, except perhaps the Kremlin pollsters. But um, the bottom line is that, circling back to Navalny, the reason why he is so dangerous is because he does not have any real national policies. He doesn't really have an ideology. He's uh, the, the the we like to think of him as pro-Western. Actually, I don't. There's a, there's not much evidence that he's really a pro-Western liberal. What he the secret of his success is focusing on local issues, and uh, one in other words. What what can what what possible ideological debate could you really have with Vladimir Putin that would be meaningful? You know that that I don't think you can, but you can engage with corrupt local authorities, and that's what Navalny's organization did absolutely brilliantly. And the second part of it was they had extremely forensic, very clever ways of organizing uh, voting. Because um, whereas Putin's is such, Putin's support is monolithic um, and 
the approval ratings are meaningless, in fact. I mean, it is, does do 80% of Russians approve of Putin? Is it 60%? It doesn't matter because there's no one who's not Putin that has any chance of, of power. So that's actually not a very meaningful metric. What's actually much more meaningful is the ratings uh, of United Russia, and certainly meaningful for the survival of the regime or the pyramid of power over which Putin presides. And the kind of rule that um, the, 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 the kind of country that, that, that Russia is. Um, and um, United Russia, the Kremlin official party, has actually been you know, taking a serious kicking in many polls. And in fact, uh, in Novosibirsk, which is um, uh, what, what Navalny was preparing, was his party's campaign in Novosibirsk when he was poisoned last August. Um, they they actually ran a very effective campaign of local activists protesting against United Russia deputies who are also head of major construction companies. I mean, there's local stuff. I mean, they say all politics is local. But actually, that's why he's dangerous to the Kremlin, because as he very simply puts, uh, sets out in one of his campaign videos, if all of the people who are against United Russia voted behind one candidate, he actually would only need about 150,000 votes in Novosibirsk to overthrow the rule of United Russia in Russia's third largest city. I mean, that's enormously significant and dangerous for the Kremlin. Um, but the, perhaps the better answer to your, to, to your question is, if, if the Russians are so unhappy about the alarming turn of events, uh, the, 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 the turn towards repression. Um, why is there no pushback? And my sense is that actually for the vast majority of Russians, they actually see poli- not, not just politics, but uh, um, they see the re- repressive measures as applying to a very tiny group of people. And this, I think, is one thing that is a major misconception in the West. And it's a very fundamental and important misconception that political opposition is somehow spread across Russia. In fact, it's very socioeconomically specific and geographically specific. Um, the Kremlin's major and in fact sole policy, policy priority is to prevent the, you know, discontent in the cities among the sort of urban intelligentsia, the urban, urban middle classes from spreading to the rest of the country. And Navalny was in danger of doing that. Um, and I think that they just don't care about the foreign agents law. It's not about them. They uh, have been very successfully convinced by years of, since 2014, constant propaganda that essentially they, large quantities, large numbers of Russians believe that Russia is literally at war with the West, or rather, I should say, the West is at war with Russia, and that they need to be defended against that aggression by the Kremlin, and they're quite happy to be defended. I think Owen is absolutely right to say that uh, Kremlin feels that Navalny and his supporters are dangerous. And one of the additional considerations, one of the additional points for that is that Navalny supporters are young. He has quite a huge following of the younger people, including even school children. And that was something that allowed uh, the authorities to crack down on uh, the protests, saying, well, you are you are corrupting our young people. But uh, just the very thing that he calls Putin a granddad 
because in their um, uh, idea of uh, the idea or in the minds of the young people, of course, he's over 60. Who, who else is he? But um, he is someone who uh, doesn't use internet. He is someone who is a very old-fashioned dinosaur. And this obviously is against the Kremlin because uh, because um, there will be more and more younger people than older people. So in the historic perspective, this uh, might uh, win. But uh, what um, I was uh, uh, going to, to uh, add, two more points. One is that uh, according to Levada Center, uh, the sociological, the polling uh, agency that has been working in Russia for quite a long time, uh, they have consistently seen that about 20% of all the people polled in uh, Russia are pro-Western in different polls. Yes, 20% is not uh, the majority at all. The majority of the country uh, is uh, not pro-Western. They probably do not feel that these breaches of democratic laws uh, are uh, something outrageous. But when it comes to economy, then these people will uh, have to react because so far their lives have been much better than they were in the Soviet years. Uh, still, if you see what they are saying now is that today the uh, prices are higher and salaries are uh, comparatively lower than they were in 2017, just three, four years ago. So if the current trend of the uh, ruling elite goes on to increasing weapons, uh, the, uh, the arms race, which they have been doing, and uh, not caring uh, as much as they did uh, about people's uh, everyday life, this is uh, probably a direction where, uh, which may make the uh, other people, so to speak, uh, the 80% who are more or less pro-Putin uh, today uh, change uh, their minds. Mm. Yes, but uh, you're right. They, it could make them change their mind. But um, let's look at Russian history. The bar for revolutionary change in Russia is exceptionally, extraordinarily high. I was in Moscow, and so and you were in St. Petersburg. In fact, I was actually in Leningrad on the day of the uh, of the, the the coup attempt against Gorbachev in August of 1991. Um, Russia was in an extraordinarily bad place uh, by that period. I mean, the the the, the markets were. Were, were were phenomenally expensive. People couldn't buy food. I mean, it, it was things had to get extremely bad before Russians decide that they need to actually force change on their rulers. And that's and of course that's also the case in 1917. Um, the, the 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 point is really that the um, 
I mean, the, it's worth bearing in mind that in any discussion between a foreigner and a Russian about Russia, the foreigner, regardless of the actual sort of parameters of the debate, the foreigner will always argue more or less that Russia could be better. Things could be better in Russia. And the Russian will argue that things could be worse. And in fact, both will be completely right. Uh, and, you know, frankly, the... Um, uh, when you look down and you look uh, look back to the Yeltsin years, uh, people don't really see what that revolt against Soviet power brought them. I mean, the, there was indeed a moment that people forget, of course, that Russia had its own orange revolution. It had its own people power revolution in August 1991. The, 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 the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was literally overthrown by a mass popular uprising in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, um, but I think the, those illusions that democracy and the free market actually could bring a better life were completely trampled and, and, and destroyed in the, for, for, in the experience of the vast majority of Russians in the 1990s. And that's the wellspring of the Soviet nostalgia. It's the wellspring of, of, the, of the Putin era. It's the wellspring that underpins their acceptance of repression because they tried freedom and it was terrible. <laughs> It was a, it was a disaster, so that brings me to like the most important point for anyone really considering Russia or change in Russia or Russia without Putin. Really, think about that. Do you want Russia without Putin? If Russia without Putin is not going to be Russia headed by Alexei Navalny, I promise you a million percent, it's not going to be a pro-Western liberal that comes to power after Putin. And I think that thinking, that realization that actually Putin is the devil we know and it could be much worse um, is actually the reason why, for instance, Russian uh, sanctions against Russia are not much more serious because they don't want regime change. They really don't because that would actually come result in a far more dangerous outcome than the present. Right. And we've seen, I mean, Biden and Putin met recently and, you know, there's a sense, okay, that, you know, the talks um, may not have gone very well, but there is a sense of wanting to engage because it's better than the the opposite, uh, you know, chaotic carnage of a, of a revolution. Um, but, but yet there is still this serious underlying issue of the cyber threat from Russia and, and these sort of things. I mean, Owen, you've obviously you know, written and um, researched a lot about the security services. So I guess this brings us on to the, the, the sort of next um, theme I wanted to talk a bit about, which was who, you know, who is really in charge and, and in control in Russia. There have been um, all sorts of articles and books um, recently about the, the, the power of the uh, security services. But, uh, you know, who is, who is control? How, how powerful are the security services? And uh, in a sense, are they, is there a, a danger that there might be a revolt from within or a power coup from within, or is that not likely? I mean, it's Putin got a proper, a full hold over his sort of immediate class of people working around him. Um, you, that, you, that's that's pre precisely the question to ask, because um, uh, last year or a couple of years ago, I did a, a, a big story for the London Review of Books. Uh, of all, I had to read all of the books written about Putin in the in the previous year. It was like a box of books, and then I got another box of books. All Western commentators try and explain the Putin regime in terms of ideology. 
sovereign democracy and so on. I mean, but frankly, I think the only real way to explain the Putin regime is between the institutional and personal relationships between Putin and the heads of various other powerful agencies. You know, most of them Siloviki, the, the power ministries, the security services. And in turn, they uh, are their actions and their impulses are dictated by their, the economic interests that they have, the corrupt economic interests, the business empires that they have. The FSB has its business empire. Even the foreign ministry has its little sort of property empire. Every every kind of basis, every group of bureaucrats, every group of clients has its has its various powers, and it uses those powers for self enrichment. The system is thoroughly corrupt. It's not a bug. It's a feature. So to the question about whether Putin is in charge or not, um, I think the classic explanation that he sort of rides herd over, he's the, the mediator, he's the person that, that kind of uh, more or less keeps all the different groups in check, is probably uh, more or less accurate. But I think what's really alarming is that there have been various incidents, starting with Skripal poisoning, Two years ago, nearly three years ago now, going on to the Navalny poisoning and the crackdown on street protests um, last summer, and the sort of general, um, the, the, and now the actual systematic legal crackdown on on on, on Navalny's organisation. Um, Who is driving that? Well, clearly, it's the security services have gained the upper hand. It's all about committee politics. It's all about who has the czar's ear. It's all about who is more powerful. And Putin's, they all respect Putin, and Putin's main job is to keep them all in their places and in power. That's the bottom line. That's, that, that, that's the ideology, is to hang on as long as possible and steal as much as possible. Uh, it is uh, absolutely true, of course, that it's not about Putin as a personality, and I agree he is more or less a mediator, but the whole um, system, of course, is a mafia state, as uh, one of Luke Harding's uh, book uh, is uh, called. It is a mafia state. And uh, what we noticed recently, I would say probably since the amendments to the constitution that allowed Putin uh, to carry on, is the increase of the uh, security uh, agencies and power uh, ministries and all that. Because I would like to quote uh, Gennady Gutkov, who used to be uh, one of the rulers and then become became and then became became one of the uh, opposition figures, he said, forget about Putin, he said in summer, it's a collective Patrushev now in the Kremlin, meaning that Patrushev is the head of one of the security agencies, because basically since the poisoning of Navalny, we have seen a very, very powerful uh, crackdown. But uh, I would not quite agree that all the, which we, uh, I, I wouldn't quite agree to the point uh, which is actually shared by Navalny that it is all about these people's personal enrichment. This is very important for them, starting from Putin and all uh, the mafia around him. But there is the ideology there is the imperial 
uh, ideology in the first place, uh, imp imperialist ideal ideology, if I, I may put it so, because we see, uh, apart from the annexation of Crimea and the war in the east of Ukraine, we see this horrible support of uh, the Belarusian dictator Lukashenko, uh, which um, the support uh, which materializes with all this money being given to him uh, while he is uh, organizing a complete torture chamber uh, on the territory of uh, uh, the Republic. And it's not Putin's own friendship with Lukashenko. Uh, the rumor has it that he hates him, but that's not about that. It's not about the personalities. It's about the power over a larger part of Europe, if you wish. If he could do the same in Ukraine, he would do it. And he is destroying Ukraine in different ways by infiltrating and again by uh, giving money to the people he wishes to give money to. And uh, I think this idea that Russia should remain superpower and to have these spheres of influence around it as it used to have in the Soviet times is very much the ideology of today's Putin's regime, which we call Putin's regime, but let's, let's say uh, is very much uh, the ideology of the regime we have today. So it's it can be difficult, I think, as you as you both you know highlighted for 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 people on the outside and particularly people who don't speak any Russian to really understand the subtleties of the you know, the workings inside the Kremlin and the relationships between different departments in the security services and the other parts of government. But what we can see is what's going on right here in the UK in terms of uh, Russian litigation, uh, Russian money coming here. I mean, the Russia report was a very muted, no doubt heavily redacted and edited um, report in terms of what's going on, but nevertheless describes a pretty worrying um, array of uh, dirty money uh, coming here and disputes coming here, and not to mention, as Owen, you already have done Litvinenko and Skripal um, cases here. So, how I mean, how worried should we be about what's going on in the UK? Do you think, and is what we've what we know about in the in the media really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of dirty money and and disputes going on? Um, here, which of course, by the way, you know, so services benefit from. You know, lawyers, accountants, real estate agents—it's all good business. Um, but it's it, it's troubling, right? Uh, it's troubling, uh, and I'm very glad we came back to that point because actually I wanted to pick you up on some of the things you said about Catherine Belton's book and um, the fact that Catherine Belton is being sued by two oligarchs. And the reason I mention that is because if to understand that very specific case. Uh, leads you to a very important larger point is that there is a conflation, a rather a, a, a rather easy to make conflation and confusion, but nonetheless uh, of of two nonetheless distinctive things, and that is uh, official Kremlin policy and dirty money and oligarchs. So we have actually started uh, the term oligarch was in fact uh, coined in the nineteen nineties. Because by for for the people who actually really ran Russia um, uh, 
instead of the Kremlin. Uh, the um, in, in fact, most oligarch, many oligarchs um, today are on a spectrum. All oligarchs are on a spectrum. They're, none of them are actually opposed to the Kremlin. That's certainly true. But some of them, and the last one who tried was Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was jailed in 2003. Uh, nonetheless, oligarchs and the Kremlin are not the same thing. That's really important to understand. There's actually quite a lot who operate more or less independently, or at least a lot as politicized as others. And also there's a separate category, which is the securigarchs, the security billionaires who are, are actually sort of in, uh, in the inner circle and have various positions in, uh, in, in the Russian security services. But about Catherine Belton, important thing, th- thing, thing to, 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 to remember is that actually Russian money corrupting British institutions is one thing. Um, it's not necessarily the Kremlin that's hounding Catherine Belton, it's these individuals who happened to, um, who were advised by their Russian British legal advisors, that was an excellent idea, and they should pay several hundred thousand pounds to clear their names. In fact, it's going to be a disaster. They're going to be completely uh, you know, sort of face plant in PR catastrophe, uh, in my prediction. But um, the um, you say that the Russian report was heavily redacted. Well, I'm not sure that we know that frankly. Um, And uh, actually, I think it's really important to remember that Russiagate was a gigantic, in America, was a gigantic nothing burger. I mean, Robert Mueller investigated the, the, the hell out of that thing. What did they come up with? Basically, nothing that was not already known. There was literally zero revelations, despite how excited like American anti-Trump people were about the Russia report. There was nothing. All we know is there was certainly a campaign of interference, very low budget, by the way, single figure millions involved, financed by Dmitry Prigozhin, one of the the, the, the insiders of, of the, the, the St. Petersburg circle, um, caterer, in fact, um, and supplier to the Russian army. Which is a very, in fact, is a very sweet, old-fashioned kind of corruption. I mean, that was the kind of corruption that there was was generals were up to in the 18th century, like corrupt food supplies. <laughs> the army they're still going strong. Dmitry Prigozhin funded a. A, 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 Owen, a, I'm really sorry. He is not Dmitry. Sorry, I'm not. He is not Dmitry. Evgeny. 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 Yeah, I'm sorry. Evgeny. Yeah. He was, um, and uh, he funded the campaign of electoral interference, which you know about Facebook ads and so on. Um, but frankly, um, it, it was very small beer, and I suspect that the British Russia report. Um, I know that there are some uh, some 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 keen um, remainers who uh, are, are pushing for the government to to, to 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 publish it in full, to investigate the Russian interference in full. But frankly, I think that it's going to be the same thing as as as, as RussiaGate. It's going to be even less than RussiaGate in America because who really cares about you know, how much does Russia really care about British political outcomes? We, we know that Russia is an equal opportunities disruptor, you know, from the, on the spectrum, from the official RT Sputnik propaganda, right through to hacking attacks and, you know, um, social media campaigns and so on and false flag campaigns. Um, you know, they've supported Basque independence, Scottish independence, Brexit, you know, they, 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 they've supported, um, gun rights people in, in America, you know, anti-abortionists, they're an equal opportunities disruptor. But I don't think that any of this actually comes 
to the level of uh, seriously undermining our democracy. And frankly, I don't, I don't really see any evidence uh, that there's some kind of gigantic elephant in the room that Boris Johnson or anybody is trying to cover up. I think we would have known about it by now. I have to disagree with Owen about uh, Russian uh, oligarchs being independent of the Kremlin. I think this is a feature of uh, today's regime that uh, they, of course, are very dependent on the Kremlin. And people like Diripaska used to say, of course, is Putin tells me I'll give up all my assets, you know. And in the trial of uh, Berezovsky and Abramovich, there was, uh, apart from Berezovsky, there was uh, another oligarch, the other oligarch there, Abramovich, who was supported by Putin. And I think that uh, infiltration of uh, uh, Russian agents in Britain is extremely dangerous because they are infiltrating everywhere from the press to the parliament and uh, say the adoption of Magnitsky law in the British parliament first took ages to uh, pass through and then it was uh, never used because of the opposition of the people who think that the um, the money that the Russians bring in uh, is more important for Britain than uh, all these uh, God knows uh, what uh, Russian petty squabbles. I think that the oligarchs who took on Catherine Belton were uh, supported by uh, the Kremlin. I think that uh, uh, they uh, the enormous amount of money that the Russians pay to the British lawyers are uh, making them do uh, all sorts of things to uh, earn more money and not to uh, and not to uh, really follow the, uh, the, the, the justice. And uh, I am not so sure that uh, the, the Russians will lose in uh, this uh, case of uh, Catherine Belton. Uh, I think uh, there was a case of uh, Gennady Timchenko suing Edward Lucas and The Economist, I think, uh, for libel. And uh, uh, it, it was a very, very uh, serious case which cost a lot of uh, time and money uh, for uh, the British side. So, I mean, uh, I think that, uh, yep. But The Economist won. In the end, yes, but it was uh, 10 years ago. I mean, I mean, uh, I, I think, uh, I think that uh, today the things are pretty bad, and uh, they are um, they they are the the role of uh, the Western democracies is uh, unfortunately um, well, at least for quite a long time, they have been. Uh, they have not been putting as much pressure as they could on Russia. And to finish it, I would like to say that Owen said that uh, foreigners always think that Russia could be better and the Russians always think that Russia could be worse. This is 
true. But but um, I think lots of people in Russia really hope for Russia to become better. And the whole movement of Navalny and his own speech behind from behind the bars where he said Russia will be happy. Russia будет счастливой, I think it probably touched the chords of more people in Russia than we actually think. Well, that is a fantastic way to end. We have run out of time. I want to say a huge thank you, both of you, for a fascinating um, discussion. And we could have continued this for much longer. Uh, watch out for Masha's new book on George Orwell and Russia. And Owen, what are you bringing out next, if we're, we're allowed to know what your I'm next really, book I'm, is? I, I wrote, wrote a Cold War era thriller set in uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's the second volume of a trilogy. Uh, well, the first one was Black Sun. The next one is coming out next month. It's called Red Traitor. It's based on the story of Oleg Penkovsky. It's a fictionalized version of the spy Penkovsky and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Very interesting. Watch out for Red Traitor. Thank you uh, both so much. And спасибо большое и до свидания все.